Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, I believe, is going to be the most important series I have ever had the privilege to preach. Why do I make that big statement? Well, because we are going to be spending eight weeks detoxing shame. Shame is everywhere. It affects everyone. The brilliant cultural commentator Andy Crouch, who's written for The New York Times, says we are living more and more in the West in an honour shame culture. He describes it as a fame shame culture. It's important for that reason. It's important as well because we're going to be studying shame through this amazing first century letter called Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. The fantastic former minister, preacher here at Westminster Chapel of world-renowned Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Ephesians is the most sublimest and majestic expression of the Christian faith. This is going to be a great series. Hi, my name is Howard. It's my joy to lead Westminster Chapel. And as you can see, I am excited about what we are starting today. Not least because I need this teaching as much as anyone. I struggle with shame. And if I'm hearing from God correctly, you do too. Don't let that heap more shame upon you. Let it encourage you. You are not alone in this. No matter how perfect the people around you pretend to be, they are struggling with shame too. We are all broken in that sense. You're not alone as well. If you've trusted in Jesus, you put your faith in him. God is with you. Hey, he's in you. And today he's offering again to you and to everybody listening in the most glorious way out of shame imaginable. But first, what is shame? What is it? Let's look at some definitions together. The first definition comes from Brené Brown of TED Talk fame. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Ed Welch, PhD psychologist and author of Shame Interrupted says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. Heather David Nelson, counsellor and author of the book Unashamed, says it's a feeling that we have missed the mark according to our own standards or our perception of someone else's standards for us. Shame keeps us from being honest about our struggles, sins and less than perfect moments. Fear of shame drives us to perfectionism in all areas of our lives 
so that there would be no imperfection to be noticed and judged. judged. See, there are many types of shame, but they have one thing in common. They stick to you like poo. Let me give you some examples. There is sin shame. Shame, uh, most importantly, over, over the, the wrong things we do. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Then there is body shame. Maybe you feel that every time you put on a particular item of clothing and it doesn't fit in the way that you would like or you look in the mirror and so on. Different types of body shame. Then there is social shame. Perhaps you experience that when you go on social media and you just feel like oh, my life doesn't measure up to these so-called perfect images that people are posting about how great their lives are. And then there's performance shame. That horrible feeling of just not good enoughness at work, not making the grade or work or in your relationships as a spouse, as a parent and so on. But there's also a type of shame that doesn't come so much from what you do, but what is done to you or what is said about you through association that can stick to you and come to define you as well. Here's a little bit of a silly illustration of how shame by association can work. So my wife, my wonderful wife, Holly, she feels shame when she has to go out in public with me and I happen to be wearing my Crocs. And that gets even worse if I'm wearing Crocs with socks. You probably have some sympathy for her. A more serious illustration would be a parent who goes to prison for fraud and is talked about at school. This leads us into the topic of shame's ancient origins. Shame is a big deal because it pervades our very existence. We all experience shame by association. Going back to Adam and Eve, our great, 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 ever so great grandparents. The Bible points to the truth of that story. So does science and genetics converging on the truth of it. We experience shame of their failure in the garden. God showers them with goodness, yet they turn their back on him like a child saying F you to his, to his loving parents after all the care that, that they've received. It's horrible. And, and we, you and I, we, we are more like them, chips of the old block than we probably dare to admit. But it didn't begin that way. Shame is an intruder, an unwelcome visitor, which means shame doesn't have to be present in your life. God made everything good. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 says Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. But the moment they turned their back on him, they were smothered in it. And they make loincloths and they hide in the bushes and they blame others, all in botched attempts to blot out shame. What about you? What's your shame story? We really want you to think that through, wrestle it through and talk about it with others, small little groups of the same sex, ideally breakout groups from your life group, because one of the ways we must tackle shame is by not letting it hide in the shadows, is by sharing our stories with people who know us, love us, who we trust. It's about being authentic church family. I want to take a lead in that now. It requires vulnerability, risky sharing. So that's what I'm going to do in sharing my story with you. When I was three years old, I nearly died from a chronic extreme asthma attack. From that moment, I realized that I was flawed. My body was flawed in a way that others weren't. 
A few years later, I would be diagnosed with dyslexia and told that I would have to work harder than everybody else just to measure up for the rest of my life. A few years after that, I was put on a specialist diet to control chronic migraines and horrible eczema. No wheat, no dairy for seven years. And, and in a time before like, supermarket aisles with free from ranges and all, all that kind of stuff, I, I was something of a freak with my horrible cardboard like <laughs> gluten-free crackers and a piece of ham and oh, I was disgusting and I didn't fit in as a result of that. I was not included, let alone felt I belonged with my peers. The media would then amplify that message of flawedness by presenting only beautiful, perfect people who are happy. So I began to hate the way I looked. I wanted plastic surgery. I had plastic surgery, very painful on my face, thinking it would give me acceptance and inclusion and even success in our fame-obsessed society. Of course it didn't. I would need Jesus for that. And yes, despite all the extraordinary progress I've made in the gospel, by the grace of God, I still have days where I default back into this not good enough persona, where I presume if I go into a meeting where I speak at a different church or event, I just won't measure up. I won't be good enough. I will fail. I'm flawed. When I speak with other church pastors, I experience performance shame especially if their church is bigger and it's growing faster or doing something really impressive. I'm just like, I don't measure up and it can tempt me to turn away from my own calling and to just give up and to say, oh, well, maybe somebody else can come and do, do the job far better than me. Now, I'm not sharing all of this for your sympathy, although that is nice. I do prefer checks made payable to Howard Satterthwaite, though I'm just teasing. I'm joking. I'm sharing to try and model something to you of vulnerability, which I'd love to spread across our whole church, but also to help you start to take some ground in understanding your shame story. One of the earliest experiences of shame for you. Can you remember them? How did they happen? Is there a disengaged dad on the scene? Those early experiences can be more determinative than you realise. What words ring in your ears, go around your head, the shame-inducing words? And how do you react to shame? How do you respond to it? For me, I often will just withdraw. Uh, I'll withdraw and I will self-attack at the same time. Um, or I'll sometimes go the opposite way. I will go into extreme overworking to try to eradicate any form of imperfection. How about you? OK, let's move on. We'll go back to Eden. Did things stay that way? No. The divine tailor enters the scene. God didn't leave Adam and Eve naked and ashamed, wearing their skimpy, like Borat mankini-like outfits. Uh, no. He sacrifices an animal. He clothes them with animal skin. An extraordinary act of grace that really foreshadows and points us towards Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. These were clothes that were better than Adam and Eve could have made for themselves at that point in time, but they were far from the ideal that God had planned for them. As I think even a non-vegan would, would appreciate, a little bit not animal skin, not nice. Um, see, clothes have always been a status symbol. 
Uh, we know that in the scriptures, the Bible has these amazing priestly garments that if they're designed correctly and you wear rightly, you can go into the most holy place. There's a status, an influence, a power associated with them. We know it by experience as well, don't we? That temptation to buy certain brands of clothing or certain celebrity endorsed items in order to make us think and feel better about ourselves. Clothes have power. I am the proud owner of this Star Wars Jedi dressing gown. Rightly or wrongly, when I wear it, I think I am cooler and wiser. You may disagree. <laughs> um, and that I even could be a Jedi master with the power of the force to control my wife's mind and say to her, you will go out with me when I wear Crocs with socks. <laughs> anyway, I I'm messing around. My point is clothes have power. How much more so when God is their designer. The Eden fashion label is just infinitely improved by brand Calvary. The beautiful birthday suit uh, that God gives to every newborn believer. I think if I can use my preacher's license here, it's being metaphorically described in Ephesians chapter one. And this may well parallel Ephesians chapter six, the full armor of God that we are called to wear. God is giving you wonderful clothing to wear, beautiful clothing that describes who you already are through faith in Jesus. <laughs> Chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. Wow. This is the beautiful white wedding dress that God gives his church to wear. He lets you wear that gives you confidence, despite all of your sin, failure and shame, that you can look full in the face of your holy, happy, smiling and approving spiritual husband, Jesus Christ. The question is, will you fully live in its shameless reality? Let's take a few moments now to look at the wider context of the book, this letter, Ephesians, before we drill into verses one and two. Ephesians is a letter that is structured in two parts. The first part, chapters one to three, are about being and identity. The second part, chapters four to six, which begins with instructional imperatives, is about doing and action. This is really significant. Um, it's important to get hold of this, that being comes before doing. Uh, belief comes before behaviour or behaviour comes out of, of a belief, a right being in Christ, being with God. So often we want to jump ahead to those later chapters to work out how do I behave? How do I behave as a Christian man or woman or husband or father or mother or employer, employee, all of that? And Paul will get to that. But it is foundational upon our identity in Christ. That's what we've got to go back to. So if you're struggling down that area in the behavior, make sure you are solid in the belief. So the letter is written in two parts, but it's also a kind of two-part letter in, a, in an interesting way. It's a mirrored pattern. It's particularly clear, this mirrored poetry in the first three chapters. So you get there this opening burst of praise, verses 3 to 14 in chapter 1, with no grammar, this sort of outflow of just joy and delight in what God has done. 
That is matched by the ending of chapter three and a shorter burst of praise doxology. Then we go in, if you like, in a kind of pair together of prayers, a pair of prayers together about revelation, both beginning with for this reason that they're matched in that way and then inside that we're really meant to look at that the central point the ending of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three where Paul is saying this is why I'm writing this letter this is really at the heart of what it's all about for me in this letter to you and that is God's ultimate plan revealed to me the cosmic reconciliation of all things in Christ heaven and earth and everything coming together and that's to be made manifest known to the world through you the church through Jew and Gentile coming together wow that oneness theme is not just revealed in the design of the letter but it's also shown in repetition of the word one throughout the whole letter check it out see how many times you think it comes up it's also shown then in the grammar so that the, the, the word you is a plural you. Almost always it's a plural you. Think of the text in you all. So it's grace to you all. And it helps us to read the letter more about us as a community, together as a family, than me as an individual. That means there's absolutely no place for racism and any form of divisive behaviour in the church. Paul is at pains to point out the crowning jewel, a crowning jewel of the gospel is this reconciliation, is unity in diversity. Every ethnos coming together to impact every sphere of society for the glory of God. That means we, the church, we've got to lead in this, not BLM.org. We've got to take the lead in being ambassadors of reconciliation, of modeling, of modeling. Beautiful unity and diversity and with the the only solid logical sensible empowered basis for that the gospel and we're going to unpack that a lot more particularly next year when we get into chapters two and then into chapters three but right now this term we want to lay a good solid gospel foundation detoxing shame also because shame goes often hand in hand with issues of racism so we've looked at the wider context. Now we're going to drill down into these first two verses, which are really three lines or three mini paragraphs. Let's take each of them in turn. First, your shame is not beyond hope. Look how the letter begins. Paul is introducing himself. Paul, an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But you should stop there just on that first word, Paul. Paul, seriously, this guy who murdered Christians, followers of Jesus, who broke up, brutally broke up families, who calls himself the worst of sinners. How could he overcome such stigma and shame to be saved and become a sent one of Jesus? By grace. By grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favour. Christian, Christianity is not about being a good person. Paul was not a good person, and yet God saved him. That means there's hope and help available for everyone, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're at. Your shame is not beyond hope. God and Jesus Christ set Paul free from shame, suffocating grip upon him. He's now a sent one. He's writing 
in prison, chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing in chains, chapter 5, verse 20. It's hard for 21st century Western minds to really understand just how shameful that would have been in the first century Middle East and Mediterranean context. You'd be judged, you'd be presumed guilty, even though innocent. That mud would be sticked to most people and, and that mud was being thrown at Paul again and again, but this stuff didn't stick onto him because it had nothing to grip hold of because Paul found his sense of worth only in his relationship with Jesus. So however un Worthy, however worthless you think you are, you can experience the same thing that Paul did through faith in Jesus. Your shame can be undone. How? Well, that leads us into the next point by knowing that you are a saint. Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful or who are rather believers in Christ Jesus. Is Paul saying that everybody in the Ephesian church is 100% a Saint Mother Teresa? No, that's a misunderstanding of sainthood. Paul is actually almost certainly not writing only to the Ephesian church. He's writing to a whole region of churches. How do we know that? Well, the words in Ephesus are not in the earliest original manuscripts, probably a later edition. And there's no specific like, church issues that he, he identifies. And there's no personal greetings to a church that he knew very well, maybe better than others, which is unusual because he does greet other churches in that way. So this is really a general letter to a whole region of churches in a valley region. And it's become associated with Ephesus because that was probably the biggest church. We can still learn a lot, though, from the origin story of the church of Ephesus, because it's probably paralleled in many of these other churches. And we learn about that from Acts chapter 19. And we discover a, a city that worships the goddess Artemis, Diana, the goddess of hunting and childbirth. That's sexually immoral, engaging in ritual prostitution. That's also obsessed with the occult. When some believers come to faith, they burn their scrolls publicly and are valued at something like 4.7 million pounds today. Wow. Out of that, that context, this church is born and Paul is writing to saying you are all saints. Literally, the word means holy ones. Despite all of that past, that shame and dirty, guilty past. No, you are saints, holy ones. Wow. Paul uses this term 39 times to describe believers in Jesus. It means that you listening, you are not a sinner. If you trusted in Jesus, you are a saint, you are a saint, you are a saint. But I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel holy. I still struggle with sin. You're saying, yeah, well, that doesn't ultimately matter. That's not what defines you. What God declares over you is what defines you now. And the verdict in the heavenly courtroom, it's final. He accepts you just as you are. Wow. It's a little bit like when Kate Middleton married Prince William. She went on saying I do from being normal Miss Middleton to being Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge. Did she earn that title? Did she work hard for it? Did she do a course to study for it? No, she simply received it through entering into union with the prince who loved her. Wow, how much more so with Jesus who's no earthly prince. He's the king of all kings. 
who goes to the cross to suffer in your place, to pay the penalty for your sin, to set you free from the stranglehold of shame on your life, to purchase for you the title saint. And he gives it to all and everyone who will say, I do to him. Have you? Have you said I do to him? Do you know where you stand eternally? Do you know what will happen to you when you die? You can be sure. I'd love to help you be sure. Fill in the form and I or one of my team will happily seek to serve you. Church, if we get hold of our sainthood, if we really soak in it, I tell you, God will establish an amazing field hospital, an incredible mission station church that would rival ancient Ephesus. If God could work through that ragtag group of believers, I tell you, he can work through you and me for his glory. That's if we don't succumb to ways of the world, but we soak, we soak, we soak in our sainthood. And this blessed privilege is wonderfully summarised in the final little line that opens this letter that we'll look at today. Grace and peace to you all. You are guarded by grace and peace. The love of God hems you in throughout the whole of your life. Grace and peace begin this letter and they end this letter in chapter six. They are the bookends of the Christian life. In chapter six, Paul says about, he reverses them, he flips them, peace and then the love of God. And then he goes into grace. Grace has the final word. Grace goes before you and grace will lead you home. I love this Buddhist metaphor that picks up on this idea of grace. It's that we don't live our lives as baby monkeys holding on to our mothers and going with her from place to place. And if we let go, we're lost. No, we're held by God throughout our lives. We're more like kittens in the mouths of their mothers taken from place to place to place. This is the beautiful and glorious grace of God. Grace is God's first word. Grace is God's last word to you. And when we experience grace, when we die to our pride, to let grace in, we find peace. Grace is the wellspring of peace, shalom, relational wholeness and rightness in your being. I have spent far too much time trying to fight shame in my own strength. But what I have found, and I pray you will too, is that the moment that you stop doing that, stop trying to live life by your own self-effort, and you surrender to God's good grace, you experience peace and a deep contentment in your soul. How is this all possible though? It's because of God, God, God. Grace and peace come from God. Sainthood is because we're in Christ. This is an amazing statement in Christ. It means you're no longer in the line of Adam, of death, despair and hopelessness, but you cross over. Your ancestry changes through faith. You're now in Christ, in his line of hope, love, joy, peace, life and all its goodness. Your ancestry changes and your destiny changes along with it. And then the final statement, the final God is the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul mentions the will of God four times in the first 11 verses. It's a big, important thing. God's will is amazing. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be opposed. It cannot be resisted. It will be accomplished. And what is it? 
It's the res reconciliation of all things. It's the reconciliation of you back to God. It's the reconciliation of simple unholy people back in right relationship with holy, with the holy God. It's a reconciliation of, of Jew and Gentile, formerly ethnic enemies coming together in the church through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the reconciliation of heaven and earth no longer overlapping, but now completely together in this new glorified, supersized world that we will inhabit and live with God and meet him face to face. No longer through a glass dimly. This is the ultimate answer to shame. It's stopping focusing on yourself, this egocentric, morbid obsession with ourselves, and instead looking to God, looking not to our wills, dying to all of that, and looking to his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and letting ourselves be swallowed up in it all by his amazing grace. Are you doing that? Are you honestly doing that? Looking to him. This is your new identity. It's a shame-killing identity that you become in Christ, in the beloved, in God's only Son, and experiencing, therefore, the same love that God has for the Father you are able to receive and experience. That's your primary association now. None of that other stuff that associated with you, all that shame-associated stuff, body shame, performance shame, social shame, sin shame, none of that can define you anymore because you are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. This is wonderful and amazing. So I want to encourage you to soak in this truth, to brainwash yourself with it by repeating certain key statements of truth every single day for the next eight weeks daily, but especially when shame starts to raise its head, when you start to notice your reactions to shame. Tell yourself, I am not a sinner, I am a saint. I am not shameful, I am shameless because I am in Christ. Grace goes before me, grace goes with me, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Oh God of heaven, we thank you for your grace and peace. We thank you that you declare us saints, holy ones, not by our efforts, but by your goodness and your mercy. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. Clothe us with this true identity of who we are. Over the next eight weeks, transform us and destroy every trace of shame, that we would live lives much freer of all the inner confusion and obsessive talk about shame that so sucks us out, sucks out the energy in our lives. God, set us free from it to serve you, to love you rightly, to love others rightly, that many lives might be transformed for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.